Well, Psalm 145 is a phenomenal psalm. It's Hebrew poetry, and I told you last week it is a Hebrew acrostic, which means that each stanza starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It starts with the first letter, Aleph, then it successfully goes throughout the, the entire uh, psalm, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav, Zion. It just walks through those Hebrew uh, letters as the first uh, letter of each stanza. Now, you can't see that in your English translations, but it really is beautiful to see how the Hebrew people did that. I think there are about seven acrostics in the Psalms. This, this Hebrew poetry is used, this, this form of Hebrew poetry is used about seven times in the Psalms. And notice this is a Psalm of David. Uh, David was a great hymn writer, a great psalm writer, and this psalm is no exception. It is wonderful. And I believe the the theme, the main point of this psalm, and I believe the main point of this study, is found in verse 3. Look what it says in verse 3. David says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. That's a, a great a great summary of what this psalm is about. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. How great is our God. And, and by the way, God's greatness should always lead to our praise. That's what it's all about. And so we're studying here the greatness of God. And we've come to verse 4, down through verse 7, that gives us some information that points us, if you will, to God's power. Look what it says in verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another. Hey, real quick, everyone look at me for a moment. That's important. That a generation that knows God tells the next generation about that God. That's very, very important. I'll tell you why that's important. Because we're losing generations. We're losing our young folks. And and we're losing them in record numbers. And so we've got to take ownership to pass on the things we've learned about God, the things we've experienced in our walk with God, the things we've seen God do. We've got to pass that on to the next generation and the next generation because if we don't, we're going to see an increasingly godless culture develop. So one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Notice that mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Your wondrous works. I will what? Meditate. Now, Eastern mysticism talks about meditation. But in Eastern mysticism, meditation is emptying your mind. It's coming to a place of nothingness, which I don't even really understand what that means, but that's what they tell you. You need to just come to a point of nothingness. Biblical meditation is not emptying your mind. Biblical meditation is filling up your mind. And notice here he says, we're going to fill up our minds. We're going to fill up our minds with your wondrous works. We're going, to, we're going to think deeply about your wondrous works. On your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might, might, power, strength, the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. So David here spent some time talking about God's works, his mighty acts, his wondrous Deeds, speaking here of the power of God. Now what I want to do is I want to just walk us through a discussion on the power of God. And we're going to look at a lot of different scriptures tonight and make a lot of different points tonight. But I think that as, as we dig deeper, you'll start to understand God's power in a greater way and understand what it means for you and for your life. So first of all, let's look at the power of God declared. 
the power of God declared. The Bible just just speaks of the, the power of God. And it does it in some really interesting ways. For example, over in Genesis 18, 14, where God told Abraham and Sarah that he was going to give them a... Uh, son, even though they were beyond childbearing years. You know the story. Sarah laughs. She's giggling because she thinks that's impossible. And in the midst of that story, the question is asked, is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah, you're in there doubting, but the question is, is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, what's the answer? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is no. And let me show you how the Bible answers this. Turn over to Jeremiah, Old Testament book of Jeremiah. Verse 32. Verse 17. Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm nothing is too hard for you. Do you hear that? Nothing is too hard for you. And, and then over in Genesis, uh, sorry, Matthew chapter 19, look there with me very quickly. Matthew chapter 19, New Testament. First book in the New Testament. This is Jesus encountering the rich young ruler. Jesus said it's, Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The reason he said that is because it's hard for people that have a lot to know that they are needy, spiritually needy. And Jesus makes that point. It's not impossible, but it's hard for someone that has everything to understand they are spiritually poor and they need a Savior. And it says in verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God, watch this, all things are possible. So when we ask the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? The Bible gives the answer, a resounding no. There's nothing that is too difficult, nothing beyond the power of Almighty God. So in the Bible, the the power of God is just declared. It's just, it's just, it's just, just out there for us to see and to consider. But then I want to, want to show you something about the power of God defined. The power of God defined. How do we actually define God's power as it is presented to us in the Bible? And I've given you a lengthy definition here. Actually, kind of cut, cut it a little bit. It was actually longer than that. It comes from a, a writer of, 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 of old named Stephen Sharnock. He wrote a book called On the Existence and Attributes of God. And here's how he defines the power of God. He writes, The power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. So the power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatever he pleases. And then Sharnock says, very poetically I might add, How vain would be the eternal counsels if power did not step in to execute them. Without power, his mercy would be but feeble pity. His promises, an empty sound. His threatenings, a mere scarecrow. In other words, if God did not have all power, there might be some things he wants to do, but he would not be able to do those things because he was, he, he's powerless or didn't have enough power to do what he wants to do. 
But when we say that God is all-powerful, what we are saying is that God has the power to do anything that he wants to do. That's what we mean by the omnipotence of God. All power is available to him. Wayne Grudem says it very simply like this. God's power means that God is able to do his holy will. God is able to do his holy will. Now, a couple of thoughts, or three thoughts, about God's power as we think about defining it. First of all, God's power is infinite. It knows no boundaries. Turn over to Job chapter 26, right before the book of Psalms. you got the book of Job, which speaks of his suffering. And even though he suffered, Job held on to his faith in God and made some really important declarations about God. And look what it says in Job chapter 26, verse 1. Job answered and said, How you have helped him who has no power. How you have saved the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. With whose help have you uttered words? Whose breath has come out from you? The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God and Abaddon has no covering. In other words, he's thanking his friends for their wise counsel. He's saying, you really helped God out. He really needed you to speak into my situation. But he's being sarcastic because he's about to describe God. Look how he describes God in verse 7. It says, He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. Hangs the earth on nothing. How many of you understand that the Bible is scientifically accurate? Listen to me. The Bible and science are not at odds. They're not. The Bible is scientifically accurate. And if science teaches something that's different than what the Bible teaches, science needs to get right, not the Bible. And let me give you an example. Science used to say, philosophers used to say, that the earth was uh, riding on the back of a cosmic turtle. Well, Job just tell, tells like it is. It hangs on nothing. It's just in the, 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 the solar system, orbiting around the sun, hanging on nothing. And so the Bible is scientifically accurate. And it says there, He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. In other words, how do you get water up in the sky where it can fall on crops and and, and rain? We couldn't figure that out, but God figured it out. It's called clouds, gathering of, of, of moisture until it gets to a point where it begins to let that moisture fall upon the earth. God designed that. He designed the whole process of precipitation. It says... He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle in the face of the waters. I believe speaking of a, a horizon here. You know, we, you look as far as you can look in there, you see the horizon. At the boundary between light and darkness, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, by his power, do you see that? By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. Rahab, is the, here's the name for a an ancient sea monster, and, 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 and people had their idea of this, this huge sea monster named Rahab, and he's saying God is the, most, is the most powerful being in the universe. He has power over the greatest monsters that we can comprehend. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. How small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand? I love what Job says. He describes God's power in hanging the earth on nothing, you know, causing precipitation, you know, putting the moon and the, the, the solar system in its place, his power in creation. And then he says, everything that we see, 
that, that is a reflection of God's power is but the outskirts of God's ways. When we see his power in creation, we are barely scratching the surface of how powerful God is. Isn't that amazing? You think, wow, look at the universe, the galaxies, the stars, the, 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 you know, the, the billions and billions and billions of stars. How do you explain that? God's power. But it's only just the outskirts of his power. He says there, how small a whisper do we hear of, of him? Even though we see creation and see how powerful he is, it's just a whisper of how powerful he fully is. And he says, the thunder of his power, who can understand? In other words, we can't wrap our minds around just how powerful God is because his power is infinite. It knows no boundaries. He has all power. That's our God. Not only is God's power infinite, but God's power is inherent. Not inerrant, inherent. I-N-H-E-R-E-N-T. Look over in Psalm 62 with me. Psalm 62, verse 11. David says here, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power, watch this, belongs to God. In other words, power is not something that God is acquiring or grasping for. He just has it. It's inherent. It just, it's just his character and his nature. God has existed for all of eternity. And for all of eternity, God has possessed omnipotence. God has possessed all power. That's, that's hard to wrap your mind around, isn't it? But his power is inherent. He's not grasping for it. He's not, he's not growing in power. He has all power. Like the way A.W. Pink says it, God's power is not acquired, nor does it depend upon any recognition by any other authority. It belongs to him inherently. And and here's the third thing as we define God's power. God's use of his infinite power, and this is important, is qualified by his other attributes. Qualified by his other attributes. For example, look what it says in Psalm 62, verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. So isn't it interesting that in verse 11 he mentions God's power, verse 12 he mentions God's steadfast love. And here's what we need to understand. God's power is always used in accordance with who he is. So God will never use his power in a way that negates his love. That makes sense? And it mentions his justice there in verse 12. You will render to a man according to his work. God will never use his power in a way that is unjust. He'll always, listen, he'll always do the right thing with his power. Now there's an old saying that says, absolute power corrupts absolutely. You ever heard that? Raise your hand if you've ever heard that phrase. In other words, sinful humanity can't handle power because it just corrupts us. We can't handle absolute power. No, no accountability, no checks and balance. We can't, we can't handle that. Listen to me. God has absolute power, and he's the only being in the universe that is not corrupted by absolute power because his being is perfect. He's holy, he's righteous, he's just, he's fair, he's patient, he's loving, he's merciful, he's kind. And his power is always put into, uh, put into play according to his other attributes. Look over in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 68. 
We'll talk some more about God's goodness probably next week. But look what it says in verse 68. The psalmist talking to the Lord says, You are good and do good. So God is good. So when he does something, when he uses his power, it's always according to his goodness. God will never use his power to do something wrong. He'll never use his power to do something something that is not right. Something that is not good. His power is always in accordance with his goodness. Over in Titus 1-2 it says that there are some things God can't do. He can't lie. Do you know that? God cannot lie because of his perfect character and nature. So his power will never be used to deceive. Over in uh, 2 Timothy 2.13 it says that God cannot deny himself. So his power will never be used in a way that denies his other characteristics. That makes sense? So you can, you can bet that when God moves with power, when God, when God applies power to your life, when God shows up in your life with power, it's always going to be used in the way that is right. Because his use of power is always qualified by his other attributes. And that's important to understand. So we've talked about the power of God declared and the power of God defined. But third, let's, let's look at the power of God described. How does the Bible describe God's use of power in this world? Well, first of all, let's talk about God's power in creation. God's power in creation. We, we said a little bit already, but look, look over in Psalm 104 with me. By the way, we're not going to look at all the scriptures I have written down there. These are scriptures you can look at on your own time. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled at the sound of your thunder. They took to flight. And so he's just speaking here of the power of God in creating everything. He mentions down in verses uh, 10 through 18, the different animals he created. Verses 19 through, uh, through 20 speaks of the, the celestial bodies. And, and it's just amazing to see all that God has created, his power in that. And look over in Psalm 95 with me. Psalm 95. Verse 3, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The height of the mountains are his also. I was reading about that one day and I thought about the depths of the earth and the heights also. And I thought about what's the highest place on the face of the earth. Anybody know the answer to that? Mount Everest. Mount Everest is the highest place on the face of the earth. And if you're curious, Mount Everest is 29,029 feet. Some people climb Mount Everest. And, and I think that's just kind of crazy. But they do that. A lot of people die trying to climb Mount Everest. But I'm going to climb Mount Everest. And I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it in heaven. Because the Bible says he's going to create a new heavens and new earth. 
and, and I'm going to live for eternity in heaven, so if, if Mount Everest makes it in the new earth, I'm going to climb Mount Everest then when I can't die. How's that sound to you? I'm good? Want to go with me? We'll go. We'll climb Mount Everest together. It'll be awesome. But Mount Everest is the highest place on the face of the earth. And, and it says there, uh, in your hand are the heights of the mountains. But notice right before that it says, in your hand are the depths of the earth. You know what the lowest place is on the face of the earth? The deepest place, anyone know? Mariana Trench. Mariana Trench. And the Mariana Trench is under the ocean. And it's, listen to this, 6.78 miles below the surface of the water. 6.78 miles deep. And the Bible says God holds it in his hand. He's over it. He made all that. He created it. That, that's, that's the kind of power we're talking about. He holds Mount Everest and the Mariana Trench in his hand. No big deal from God's perspective, right? God is power, and he's shown his power in creation. He's also shown his power in preservation. We talked about this some last week, but in Hebrews 1.3, it says that Jesus upholds all things, holds everything together in the created order, He upholds all things by the word of his power. Now that's interesting. Creation happened by God's word. He just spoke and it came into existence. That's power, right? Is that that power when you can just speak and something comes into existence? If not, go outside and try to speak something into existence. See how that goes for you. Go outside and say, Rosebush! Rosebush! Not going to happen. But God speaks and it, and it, it exists, right? Isn't that awesome? And not only does God create everything by his word, it says in Hebrews 1.3 that he upholds it all. He keeps it all together by his word. He just tells the universe how to, how to hold together, and it does. So we see God's power in preservation. We see God's power in human history. Look over in Psalm 106 with me. Psalm 106, verse 7. The psalmist here speaks of the history of Israel when they were in Egyptian bondage and slavery. He says in verse 6, Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty what? Power. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry. He led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. How do you explain a group of slaves escaping from the most powerful kingdom on the face of the earth with chariots and and foot soldiers? How do you explain that? The power of God. God rules over human history. He, 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 he causes kingdoms to rise and causes kingdoms to fall. He is in control of all that. He, he exercises his power over the, 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 the kingdoms of this earth. Look over in Psalm 66 with me. Psalm 66. I told you we'd be turning a lot tonight. Psalm 66 verse 5. Psalm 66, verse 5. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. Speaking of his power, he turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. 
There do we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves, Selah. In other words, God's, God's powerful, and, and if you think that you're a nation that doesn't need God and you can rebel against God, you need, to, you need to pay attention because God is the one who causes nations to be cast down. So don't exalt yourself. God's the one calling the shots. God's power in human history. And I can give you a lot more examples we could talk about. Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and uh, Persia and Cyrus and and there's just so much about God's power in directing human history. But He is all powerful. Next, God's power is seen over the demonic realm. Over the demonic realm. Look what it says over in Mark chapter one. Mark chapter one. Mark chapter 1, verse 21, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching and they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Who's in control here? Obviously the demon's not in control, right? He's terrified. And it says there in verse 25, But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, the demonic realm, and they obey him. I want you to understand, listen to me, that God is more powerful than Satan and his demons. It's not like it's a a fair fight. It's not like, you know, you know, Satan and God are going at it, and, and Satan wins around, and God wins around. That, that, is a, that is a very unbiblical picture of spiritual warfare. God has won, and God places limits on Satan. For example, over in the book of Job, when Satan wanted to afflict Job so that he would curse God, God said, okay, I'll let you afflict him, but just don't take his life. God had Satan on a leash. You can go this far, but no further. God's the one calling the shots and one day God is going to throw Satan into the lake of fire and all his demons and when the dust settles on human history every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because he is all powerful and he is more powerful than the demonic realm. And we're reminded of that story here in Mark chapter 1. Listen to me. When it comes to spiritual warfare, when it comes to to demons and, and Satan who wants to destroy our lives. We need to be vigilant because the Bible says he's like a roaring lion seeking those whom he can devour. But we need to be dependent because we're to stand strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might, it says in Ephesians 6. We're to be strong in him, not our own strength, his strength. And, and third, we need, to be, we need to be confident because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Amen? God is more powerful than the demonic realm. We see it here in Mark 1. There's a lot more examples of that as well. Then we see God's power over disease. Look what it says over in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Verse 1, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. 
And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Then he heals the centurion's uh, servant. Then he heals Peter's mother-in-law in verse 14. I mean, one of the major aspects of Jesus' public ministry was he healed people just by speaking a word. He is powerful over disease. He is a, a, a great physician who can absolutely heal when he decides to. Amen? Then we see God's power over death. God's power over death. Luke chapter 7. Look in verse 11. Luke 7 verse 11. You say, wait, I thought we were talking about God. You're reading stories about Jesus. Hey, listen, Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, fully man, fully human, took on human flesh, but he's fully God. And because he's fully man and fully God, he can go to the cross and die on the cross for us and pay the infinite debt that we owe. But that's another sermon. He's, notice his power over death. Luke chapter 7. Verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him, and he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up. If, if you've ever questioned the extent of God's power, read that verse again. The dead man sat up. Does that not amaze you? And it says there, he began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, A great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Power over Death. And Ephesians 1 says that the, the power that God used, verses 19 to 21, the power that God used to raise his son from the dead is the same power that he gives us to live the Christian life. Now that's amazing, isn't it? Resurrection power resides in you. So why are we so apathetic? Why are we so complacent? Why are we so ineffective in, in, in changing the world? When we have resurrection power, because we don't avail ourselves daily, surrender to that power, do we? But I want you to understand, if you're a believer in Christ, the power that God exerted to raise Christ from the dead, His, his death-defying power lives in you. Is that not amazing? And then... We see God's power to save. Zephaniah 3.17 says that God is mighty to save. Romans 1.16 says that we're not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is this message of what Christ has done to save us. Christ came to earth, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He was buried and early on the third day he rose from the grave defeating death itself. And because Jesus Christ has died and was buried and has been raised again, you and I can be forgiven and given eternal life when we place our faith in Christ alone. Amen? God's power to save. First, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the word of the cross is to those that are perishing, foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We understand that in the cross, we see the power of God to save guilty, ruined sinners like me. God's power to save. It's interesting that, that people who are perishing don't see that power. They don't get the cross. Years ago, I was... 
fishing on the Gulf, and we caught a, a bunch of little fish, and we put them in the live well. And we got back up to the dock, and we didn't really have enough to clean and eat. And so my job was to get those little fish out of the live well and throw them back into the canal so they could live to be caught another day. And now I'll never forget, I was in that, I was opening that live well, and I was reaching, and those fish were running from me. And they had no idea that I was trying to save them. I was trying to grab them and put them back in the water so that they could live and not die. They weren't going to be fried that night, right? And, and it was foolishness that, that this hand was coming to grab them, but I was trying to save them. And that's how people look at the cross. That story about Jesus and him dying, a, a Jewish carpenter dying under the, the hand of Pontius Pilate, a bunch of foolishness. But no, it is the power of God to save. I'm so grateful for the cross. And so we see his power to save. And then we see God's power in judgment. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. I'm going fast. We're going to, we're going to land the plane here in a few minutes. Revelation 20. We're circling the runway right now, okay? Revelation 20, verse 11. This is John's vision given to him by God of what's going to happen as the end time scenario unfolds. And in verse 11 The Bible says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. Now listen to me, you got two options on Judgment Day. Option number one, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, because you've embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, And he looks in the book and sees your name and says, your sins are forgiven. You get to experience my presence in heaven forever and ever and ever. That's option number one. Option number two is that your name's not in the book of life because you're not saved. You've never embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior. There's another book opened up and it's all the things you've done wrong. And you're judged according to those things you've done wrong. Who wants to stand before God and be judged for all of their wrongdoing? Every wrong thought every wrong word, every wrong action, every immoral act, judged for those things before the great white throne of judgment. I'm telling you, it's going to be a lot better to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life because you've embraced Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And all those things in that other book have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. Isn't that good? But notice what happens here. I get carried away. Notice what happens. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Notice there's no appeals process. Notice no one's arguing with Jesus here. His power to judge them and cast them into eternal hell is is power they cannot resist. His power on that day to cast people into eternal separation from God will be unquestioned and unchallenged. He has power to judge. And then last, we see God's power to secure our inheritance. Look in 1 Peter 1. Here's the other scenario. Instead of going to the lake of fire, if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you can go to heaven. 1 Peter 
chapter 1. Look what it says in verse 3. I love this passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance. That's what we have waiting for us in heaven. I think that entails everything that is ours in Christ. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so God has all of these blessings waiting for us when we get to heaven. And they're ours in Christ. And notice what it says. Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So your inheritance is being guarded, watched over by the power of God. It's waiting for you when you get to heaven. God's power to secure our inheritance. Pretty amazing. And so we've talked about the power of God declared and defined and described. But last, I want to just say just a quick word about the power of God being delighted in. Delighted in. Let me give you two thoughts here very quickly. Number one... Delight in his power because it's amazing. Delight in his power because it's amazing. Over in Exodus chapter 15, after he had delivered them from Pharaoh by parting the Red Sea and delivering them across the Red Sea on dry land, and then when Pharaoh and his army pursued, he caused the Red Sea to to go back to its place and to overwhelmed Pharaoh's army. They were drowned, destroyed, decimated. And the Israelites are on the other side of the Red Sea. They're safe from Pharaoh. God is moved by sending ten plagues and moved by parting the Red Sea. And they are heading to the Promised Land. And look what they say in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, Awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. In other words, they are amazed at his power. Who's like you, God? Who can do this kind of stuff? Only you can. And they're just amazed at his incredible display of power. Delight in his power because it is amazing. Let me just be honest with you. I I, I put together this Bible study, and I was... You know, putting in blanks and Bible verses and definitions and, and getting it ready in a, in a format that I could teach it to you, in a format you could digest and take home and study later on. And, and I was really focused on, on the, the nuts and bolts of the Bible study, just getting everything right, the right blanks and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and I got it all together, and, and I, I, I sent it to our um, administrative assistant who printed it out for you and all that kind of stuff, and I was done with that portion of it. And after I got through with this preparing this Bible study, I went on a I went on a run. And I was running and I was praying and, and I began to think about God's power. And I said, "Lord, to be honest with you, my preparation of the Bible study was really about preparation of a Bible study. I wasn't really amazed by what I was reading." It, it didn't really capture my heart. I was just trying to get the, the study ready for the, for the teaching time. And when I realized that, it grieved my heart. And, and I was jogging, and I said, I said Lord, w- w- would you just capture my heart? 
I don't want to just know more about your power. I don't want to just have some theological facts in my head so I can articulate the definition correctly. God, I want to be amazed. I want to be astounded when I think about the fact that there's no limits to who you are. And you move with all power to accomplish what you want to accomplish. And everything you want to accomplish is right because you're good. So I don't know that I'm where I need to be, but I want you to know I want to be there. I, I don't want to just learn some facts about God. I want this theology to set my heart on fire. I don't want to just be a person that's full of of cold, dead orthodoxy. I want to be passionate about the Lord. I want to to know Him more. I want to worship Him more fully. And and, and I'm so enamored with Him that I, I just can't stop talking about Him. That evangelism is not just some kind of program where I go through some tracks and some steps where I'm trying to share my faith, but, but, I, but evangelism for me is just, I just got to talk about the Lord because He's awesome and he's, he's done so much for me and I just can't stop talking about Him. That's the kind of evangelism we need, amen? And so, as we think about this study, and this entire study, transcendence and eminence and omnipotence and grace and mercy and goodness and sovereignty and holiness, and we're going to look at all these different aspects of God, don't let your mind just be filled up with facts that never touch your heart. Ask God to set your heart on fire, that you might be a more fervent worshiper and a more focused evangelist. For the glory of God. Here's how A.W. Pink says it. Well may the enlightened soul adore such a God. The wondrous infinite perfections of such a being call for fervent worship. I like that. Fervent worship. Not going through the motions. Fervent. Listen. When's the last time you worship God fervently? He had all your attention. He had all your heart. All your soul. All your might. Fervent worship. If men of might and renown, I love this, claim the admiration of the world, how much more should the power of the Almighty fill us with wonderment and homage? There are blogs about college football, and I know this because I read a lot of them. And these blogs go on and on about 18 and 19 year old boys and how fast they run the 40 yard dash and how good their high school statistics were and who recruited them and, and what position they're going to play and how they're doing in practice and if they're going to start or not and how the team's going to do. And you can read all these facts where people are just enamored with these teenagers and their physical gifts to play football. And then we see this portrait of God. All-powerful. And we yawn. We yawn. We, we're just not that impressed. Something's not right with that, right? We're, we're missing. We're missing it. So he says here in this quote, and it really convicted me, if men of might and renown claim the admiration of the world, how much more should the power of the Almighty fill us with wonderment and homage? I like those two words, wonderment and homage. So number one, delight in his power because it is amazing. Number two, delight in his power because you can trust him completely. Look in Psalm 27, verse 1 with me. This will be the last text we look at. 
Psalm 27.1, again, David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In other words, David was surrounded by enemies, which was often the case with David. I mean, most of his life, he was on the run or fighting, just constantly surrounded by enemies. His son turned against him. King Saul wanted to kill him, and we go on and on and on. But David says here, The Lord's my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear if God is watching over me? I don't have to be afraid. He's the stronghold of my life. Listen to me. Because God is all-powerful, you can trust Him completely. He's capable of doing what He's promised you He will do. He's capable of keeping your life, providing for you, watching over you. He is capable and He is faithful. Again, Pink says... Well may the saint trust such a God. He is worthy of implicit confidence. Nothing is too hard for him. If God were stinted in might and had a limit to his strength, we might well despair. But seeing that he is clothed with omnipotence, no prayer, listen, no prayer is too hard for him to answer. Why don't we pray more? No need too great for him to supply. Why don't we ask him to meet our needs? No passion too strong for him to subdue. Why don't we ask God to deliver us from sin? Instead of just dabbling in it, God, deliver me, set me free. No temptation too powerful for him to deliver from. No misery too deep for him to relieve. In other words, you can trust God with your life because he's powerful. And he absolutely is able to come through for you. Amen? Absolutely able to come through for you. Psalm 27. heard a pastor speaking this week and. He told a story of meeting with a missionary. He met with me just this past week. And this missionary had been arrested, didn't hear about it in the wider scope of things um, for different reasons. And this pastor couldn't share the name of the missionary or where he was. There's security issues going on with this. But this missionary had been, um, had been, had been taken into custody, been kidnapped. And he was held for six days before he was brought back. Six days. This pastor asked him a question and said, What'd you do? How'd you do? How'd you, how'd you make it? You're, you don't know what's going to happen. You're, you're being held against your will. You, you know, your captors hate you. How'd you deal with it? And he said, Well, mainly I just, I just prayed and, and just spent a lot of time meditating on, on some of my favorite scriptures. And the pastor said, What scriptures really, which, which scriptures do you really spend a lot of time meditating on? Which scriptures really helped you the most? You know what he said? Psalm 27, in the midst of of being held captive, in the midst of threats and an unknown future, he knew that God was powerful and God was the stronghold of his life and nothing could touch him unless God allowed it. And that knowledge of an all-powerful, good God sustained this man even in the midst of some of the most terrifying circumstances that you and I can imagine. And so, this is not just theory, this is not just theology, this is not a seminary class where we just talk about some some things and and go home. This is day-to-day life. You should delight in His power because you can trust Him completely. 